Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Idol Australians with James Madison and Osha Ginsberg. Exploring the bits you might have missed from Australian history and Australian culture. And welcome to Idol Australians. I'm Osher Ginsberg. That's James Matheson. As of this recording, we are both still quite locked down. Is this the 17th Zoom meeting of the day, Jim? There's, I've had a lot of them, yes. It's hard to keep track, but this is the new normal now. You know, human interaction is lovely, but it's probably overrated. Physical touch, connection, being with people, eye contact. I mean, we've only utilised them as a species for the last 220,000 years. Why why continue with them? I say throw it out the window and just we all get a cubicle with a little camera and a Zoom recorder. And that's how we do life now. That is life now. So uh, why fight it? Get on board. Get your cubicle. If you haven't got one, build your own. It's time. Why go outside? Why, what? Tell me, what is good out there? It's nothing. It's deadly. I feel like we're in an IRL version of Bad Boy Bubby. Like you literally cannot go out the front door. People are like, what about the beauty of nature? I'm like, just follow someone on Instagram who's taking nice photos at sunrise. Somewhere where it's safe to be. It'll be great. Yep. You can get a screensaver. You get a screensaver of, say, the Daintree Forest yeah. or you can be in the Joshua Tree. Yeah. Or you can be in the Kimberleys, you know. I hear a delivery man can bring a, a scented air wick kind of thing that I plug into my wall that will give me rainforest scents at the flick of a switch. It's amazing. You, with the press of a button on your app, you can get an underpaid student with uh, no insurance on a rusty bicycle risking his life for you to have an air wick. And that's how things should be. That's that's capitalism playing out its natural course <laughs> I think it might be getting to me. I think eight (laughs) weeks in lockdown is probably my limit. And I don't know whether like the, the, the cynicism is now put on or whether it's now a defining characteristic of my personality. (laughs) It's impossible to tell. So hopefully you're enjoying the podcast because normally it probably is more upbeat or if it's not upbeat, it's less dark, you know, you put a man in a box for long enough, this is the shit that's going to come out. If I, if I wasn't contravening every every, every like law, uh, I would run over and hug you right now. I don't know what it was like near your place, but on the weekend at our place, like no fucking word of a lie. We had helicopters flying like under, under 200 metres above our house and you could hear them on the PA. Was it Clive Palmer <laughs> dropping leaflets? It wasn't Clive Palmer dropping leaflets, but you could hear the cops on the PA like sh- shouting down to people in, the, in, a, in a park or whatever going, you are in breach of a social uh, distancing measure. Uh, police are on the way. You will be fined. You will be charged. We are following you. We could hear that on the PA from our home. Wow. 
That's that's interesting. I don't think it's enough, though. I don't think it's enough. I think you should be shot on sight. If people aren't getting the message now, then a megaphone from a helicopter really isn't the extent that we need to be going to. You have a spotter, you have a sniper. The dart in the neck, walk around in circles a bit woozy, fall asleep. Oh, no, I'm not talking dart. I'm talking like just how many people do you think it would take... To be shot down from an aircraft, like like bullet through the back of the head before people were like, just the pink mist. Okay, we get you're serious. We should stay we, home. We got to okay, okay. All right, we get it. We're staying home. Like four? I'm sorry, Do you reckon four so, people? I didn't. I'm, what poster? Because I don't have a poster with me. Four, I'd still risk it. <laughs> four, four people gunned down from an Apache. Once you're in your, your hundreds, I'm like, ah, oh, maybe the dog doesn't need to walk. But I'm telling you, I feel like they're not going far enough. I feel like, actually, maybe they can combine the two. Maybe you, you either get, it's a bit of Russian roulette, you either get a bullet or instead of a tranquilizer dart, it's the actual vaccine. Like you just get shot with a tranquilizer gun, but instead of a tranquilizer, it's actually a dose of AstraZeneca. <laughs> Straight in the neck, unsolicited. With a GPS so they can come back in three weeks and get you with the second one. <laughs> yes. With a bit of blue dye, when that wears off, <laughs> just hit you with the See, solutions. We're here for solutions, Jimmy. We're here for nothing but solutions. I don't know. It's a, I'm talking with people overseas, as I'm sure you are. And it's, it's like it's in some countries, it's like fucking horrifyingly worse, and in other countries, it's been this bad and it's now better. And they go, "Oh, we remember this part. Yeah, we didn't leave our house for a year when it got like this, when the hospital stopped working." And that's you know, I got mate, mates in America who, when the when the ICUs just filled up, they're like, "Yeah, you can call an ambulance, but it won't come. And if it does come, it'll come in five hours, and then it'll drive around for three looking for a place to put you." Yeah, but we're never going to let it get to that, so we will never have the pendulum swing back from that. You know what I mean? So we'll, we'll never open it up so far that we will have, you know, temporary pop up morgues in the car parks of hospitals. We won't let it get to that. But at the same time, people are sort of recalcitrant because they're like, well, well, hang on, it's not that bad. And then if you let it rip, you get to the point where you are, you are burning bodies in the street. I don't even know anymore. I've got people who I love and respect, rational people sending me links from rumble.com and from inside truth news forward slash vaxupdate.com. <laughs> I'm getting information from people I trust that they've jumped the shark. Now they're sending me conspiracy. People I love and care about are sending me conspiracy theory shit and I'm, I'm not sure how I feel about any of this. It's a sense of control and a sense of specialness and a sense of um, uh, individuality. That and reassurance that comes from oh, someone knows what's going on, which I totally understand. In an uncertain time, I totally get it. It's it's really fascinating, actually. In saying that, though, people getting sniped from a helicopter isn't the worst idea you've ever heard. 
for getting our way out of this. I, I like no. where you're going with it, Jimmy. That'll get the numbers up. But we digress. Of course, you listen to this show for um, some incessant rambling, but also to dig deep into the cultural lexicon of Australia, the untold stories, the unsung heroes and the little bits of Australiana and nostalgia that we all live and breathe. And on this episode, we thought we'd take you on a particular motoring path. Yeah. There's a lot of great moments in uh, Australian motoring history, you know, whether it's uh, Mount Panorama, whether it's your love of Peter Brock, the great Holden versus Ford rivalry. But there is one car, there is one vehicle in particular, Osh, that has probably captured the imagination of the Australian public and regional Australia more than any other. It's a car that Australia, I think quite comfortably, can lay claim to creating, a car that has gone on to international success. It is the single-syllable super vehicle, the Ute. We created it. Well, I mean, this is the thing. Did we? We think we did. We're not sure. Is the Ute the Pavlova of the automotive world? It may well be. We claim it as our own, but really another country came up with it. I think it is ours. I think sometime in the 30s it was a apparently like a, a, the wife of a farmer from Gippsland wrote to the Ford Motor Company Australia, the boss, and asked for a particular kind of vehicle. And, and back then the boss just took the letter to the engineering and went, go. I think that's how the, the myth goes. And the difference between a ute and a pickup truck is that the pickup truck is a very practical vehicle. It's not the kind of thing that is comfortable to sit in the front. The seats aren't built for long distances. It's just it's more of a, a work vehicle. It's not like a nice, comfy thing with nice, comfy seats that you can uh, go out on a date with. And I, th- I think the demarcation is that the body line of a ute is unbroken from headlight to tail light. On a pickup, it kind of stops halfway and there's a flatbed. Or it definitely changes from there. I think that's the vehicle that Australia goes, no, nope, no. Nope. That was ours. That was ours. It's not like a, a thing that has a cab and a tray that are separate things. And so to celebrate that, tonight we are talking to the Gippsland farmer's wife who wrote that letter in 1933 <laughs> to the Ford Motor Company. Uh, Beryl, she's still alive, 142 years old. Uh, Beryl, uh, hang on, she's got a – she's – Got a muted. Not on Zoom. No, no. (laughs) A a helicopter has picked her off en route to the studio and she's developed a clot, um, which is unfortunate for Beryl. But at that age, these things happen. That's not who we're talking to at all, is it? Uh, No, no. We actually have the expert. In fact, he even runs a website called Car Expert, formerly uh, of Car Advice, the managing editor of Car Expert, Paul Marrick, one of this country's greatest automotive journalists. <laughs> G'day, welcome to the show, mate. How many cars do you say, oh, yeah, that's my car at the moment? <laughs> um, if it's my wife asking, there's only two of them. Um, <laughs> if it's anyone else, there's about six or seven of them. <laughs> Surely one of them's a ute. Well, that's the thing. I, I don't have any utes sort of in my collection at the moment, but I'm desperately looking for one. And, uh, you know, it's the car market at the moment is insane, especially Australian cars. They are going through the roof and it's becoming harder and harder to find good, low-quality examples that won't cost you an arm and a leg. You seem to be in the same sort of pickle that uh, a great Australian was when 
when she said, look, this car that we've got is not the right car. And I think the legend has it that uh, I believe it was a, 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 the wife of a pig farmer wrote a letter to the CEO of Ford. Is that how the ute came into being? Yeah, I mean, it's it, this is genuinely a story. And, and this was back in the 1930s. We, we didn't actually have utes in existence. I mean, a, a lot of custom builders made utes out of, out of some of these earlier vehicles, but there was no real ute with that exact purpose. And, and what, um, what this farmer's wife wanted was a vehicle that they could take to church on Sunday and they could also load up with everything on their farm the rest of the time. They couldn't afford two separate vehicles. So they wrote to Ford and said, look, this is our dilemma. We'd really love it if you could come up with something. And they tasked a young engineer. Um, he was a designer as well at the time, 23-year-old bloke. And he put pen to paper and designed what is now known as the ute. So it was originally called the coupe utility. And then, of course, because Australia, we shortened it to just ute. And uh, it was a massive, massive hit, sold globally. I mean, to put that into context at the time, 540 kilogram payload. So today you can carry about a ton in some of these utes. So it wasn't huge in that sense, but you can see how it has evolved from the 1930s where it was this uh, small Ford product into some of the big uh, utes that we see on the market today. Now, a lot of the things that we claim is our own, there is a lot of dispute around, whether it's Pavlova, whether it's Farlap, whether it's Crowded House. Keith Urban. Keith, well, <laughs> it seems to be a bit of a theme here. Yeah. We pitch shit from New Zealand. The Americans seem to think that they invented the pickup. Like, what's the truth about the origins of the ute? Okay, so the problem here is there's two different types of utes. And I think if you talk to the layman, a ute is just a thing with a tray in it. But there's two different sites, uh, types. You've got a unibody and then you have the body on frame. And, and when you think of some of those big American utes or even things like the Ford Ranger, the Toyota Hilux, these are body on frames. All they take is a big frame, they stick a body onto it and you have a passenger compartment up the front, storage up the back. The original utes that we had here in Australia were unibody. And if you think of the Holden Commodore ute, the Ford Falcon ute, they're all vehicles that had the same setup there, but they were more car-like. So it meant that you could do what they did in some of these, which was cramming these enormous engines into them and still making them practical for use. The Americans, of course, then Americanized it all and made them as big as they possibly could, which is why we have this culture in the States of these giant uh, pickup trucks that um, certainly sort of don't really resemble the Utes of 1930. At the time, people were, I guess, they were either driving a, a big farm vehicle or there wasn't really anything else. What did it do for small businesses and things like that that were now able to go, it's not a station wagon, they can carry more, they can get around a city more, they can get around a rural area more. What did it, what did it do at the time? This is kind of pre-war 30s, 40s. It completely changed these people because a lot of these people were, it's not like Australia today. Back then they were farmers, they were you know, simple folk in that sense. They didn't have money coming out of their ears and, and it meant that they didn't have to have a truck which really was your only option back then if you needed something to haul your, your cattle or your farm equipment. And it meant that they didn't have to have these two vehicles, one for doing your daily chores and then one for, for all your farm stuff. So it certainly changed the lives of these people. And, and from the 1930s, we saw that evolve into, into some really interesting products, both in Australia and overseas, where they've, they've really glamorised the ute and made it more than just a work vehicle. And was it an instant success? Like, did people in Australia 
straight away see the value of this or was it a sort of a slow burn to become the, the cultural icon that it is now? Well, no, it was actually, uh, it, it started going quite quickly and, and Ford has become synonymous with the, the pickup truck or the ute. They've sold 33 million trucks, that is the F-Series, since it was launched. It is a huge, huge success. And now uh, globally, one in every five um, pickups, so that, that includes the whole gamut of um, your utes, is actually a Ford. So I think that heritage has stuck strong with a lot of people and it's meant that um, this vehicle, which was big in rural, uh, rural communities, has really sort of taken off and become more a trendy vehicle to have rather than just a work vehicle. I mean, I just I trying to think of the first time I, I drove a ute. And to be honest, I was like a bit blown out that there was no one in the back seat. But also, like, I think at the time it was like a, there was power tools. It was like a lawnmower. I think we were taking someone a mate's lawnmower from somewhere to somewhere else. Like, do you remember the first time you drove, drove a ute? I have a confession to make. My first time was actually in the back of a ute and it was on a farm. So probably today I wouldn't recommend or ever recommend anyone doing it, but it was in the back of a ute and it was an old Holden ute on my mate's farm. People were using them to transport things and using them as utes. When you look at how they've popularised the ute, some new utes today you can only sort of carry three or 400 kilos. And, and the funny thing is uh, if you look at vehicles like the Ford Ranger Raptor, it's this big macho dual cab ute. They've got ads of it doing jumps and all that sort of stuff. But because of the suspension they need to have in it for it to have its performance credentials, you can't actually really use it as a ute. It has a reduced payload and towing capacity. So you can see how there's juxtaposition with the ute that it, it's kind of an image. You want to be seen like you're a hard worker, but you don't actually use it for your hard work. <laughs> What's the giveaway, do you reckon, of guys who are using their utes for proper trade-like purposes and then guys who just have a ute because they want to look cool? How can we spot it from a mile away? Tell you what, so right now um, at front of our apartment building, across the road they're building a new apartment building, so the street is littered with tradies vehicles and each morning I go for a walk to the coffee shop to get a coffee and I see all these utes out the front. Most of them look like they've, A, never been off-road and most of them don't have any tools in them because the guys will cross the road to the work site and everything's there. So I think the dead giveaway is how clean it is. Um, I find that a lot of people who are driving land cruisers and other sort of big four-wheel drives, <laughs> they want people to think they're adventurers and they go off-road. I think if you don't see any mud on these and you don't see any scuff marks on the tray, you know that it's just a bit of a poser's vehicle. <laughs> oh, heavy. You talk about your first time in a ute was in the tray, in the back. I lived in South America for a year when I was younger and I think I spent an entire year travelling around most of Ecuador and Colombia in the back of a ute with, I mean, up to eight, ten people sometimes, you know. And the, the idea that it's just used for carting around tools is such a myopic view of the ute, isn't it? When you look at it around the world, I mean, people are hauling bikes in it. They're putting their dogs in the back, you know. The Taliban just uh, retook Kabul just using, you know, AK-47s and utes. Fucking hell. <laughs> That's right. Um, but I, I was amazed when I was travelling, like, just how big the tray of the ute was for human transportation. Yeah, you're exactly right. And, and that's the thing. I think we oversimplify the ute as just being a work vehicle. It's, it is so much more than that. I think it's, it's a freedom vehicle. Like it sounds cheesy, but it is really the vehicle where you can have the best of both worlds. You've got your dual cab arrangement up the front and then at the back, you can have whatever you want. Um, and even now, like if you, before when we could travel in uh, Hawaii, 
it's still a thing and I think it's legal because you see them driving around on freeways with people in the back of them. When you remove that work aspect, they really do have such a huge ability beyond just being a work vehicle. Culturally, the ute is also this, I mean, you see a little bit with the four cylinders, you see a little bit with kind of people who set their cars up for drifting and things these days, but there's no Nissan Skyline muster there's no WRX master, but there is a ute master. What is it about <laughs> this car, this vehicle, this machine that was you know, created here in Australia that people love so much and associate their personalities with so much that they go, no, 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 I'm going to go and just do circle work in a paddock with about 1,200 other people in the middle of the bush. <laughs> like, what's that? Like, what's the cultural aspect around that? You know what? It is the strangest thing in the world because if you if you remove the last sort of five years or so where dual cab utes have become popular in city and built-up areas, the second you go out to the country, utes are simply what you drive. And the Denny Ute Mustard, it's it's in Daniloquin, this town that, that for the most part isn't all that well known, but when it holds the Ute Mustard, which it's held since uh, I think it was 1999, um, you basically have thousands and thousands of people turning up in their utes to celebrate ute culture and all that is utes. They have competitions for, uh, you know, things like the ute with the most Ks on it, the ute that's most customised. They do circle work in paddocks. Uh, It's a country music festival as well. I don't know, it feels quintessentially Australian to me and and it's kind of fitting as well when you think that, you know, we are the creators of the ute, that we should have our own festival that celebrates this thing. Um, I think it's just a fitting sort of thing for us to do. You ever been? (laughs) See, I was meant to go, uh, but COVID put an end to that and and it's been on my, my want list for such a long time because... I don't know what it is, but you see some of the enormous bull bars on these utes and and just some of the people that sit there and love life, enjoying themselves. It's it's just something I I desperately want to be part of. Isn't the true story that you were invited, but they got wind that you were going to turn up in a cyber truck and they disinvited you? (laughs) They said, fuck off, mate. (laughs) When electric trucks take off. I, I just wonder whether there's going to be a checkpoint at the front door of the Denny Ute Master saying, sorry, we don't want any of that stuff. In. Utes in Australia have been used as a political football. Michaela Cash famously was like, we're going to stand by our tradies. We're going to save their Utes when Shorten did pitch the idea of, you know, we're going to transition to electric vehicles. Where do you think we're going to go with electric Utes? I feel like Debbie Gibson, electric Utes. Where do you think we're going to go there? When, when that was all happening, we were sort of involved in all the commentary around it. And the thing that struck me as completely bizarre is that when you think of a tradie, they've been using electric tools for such a long time. And they know that if they don't charge their drill the night before, they don't do any work the following day. And it's no different with their work vehicle. I mean, anyone with half a brain knows you need to charge your phone and it'll be the same with your ute. I think that they overreacted with that. And, and the comical thing is that the electric ute actually brings a whole lot of benefits, especially to the ute above and beyond sort of regular passenger vehicles. It allows you to uh, do vehicle to grid. So it means if you do need to run tools on a work site, you can use your vehicle for it. You can charge your tools. I mean, it just seems like an absolute no-brainer to me. People are scared of things they don't know. And the electric car is just the perfect example of that. Like, 
I'm in the probably the worst case scenario for like I'm, I'm an EV owner and I, I'm in the worst case scenario for owning an EV because I live in an apartment building. It's, it's theoretically impossible to charge here because it's just not possible, right? But there are technologies and things now that allow you to do that. Um, I've never had that sense of range anxiety. And the other advantage with pickup trucks and utes is that you can actually load more and more batteries into them to give people the range that they need. And like I have an engineering degree, I understand the limitations of weight and, and everything to do with an EV. And when you do tow with an EV, you will exponentially go through battery a lot quicker because you're adding weight to that whole package. But the big advantage is you simply cram more batteries into there. Battery technology is evolving as well. And I think that before long, uh, electric utes will be pretty commonplace around the place. Hey, mate, I wanted to get you to give us a little bit of background, maybe perspective for people who might be a bit younger and don't understand the sort of fierce rivalry that existed between Ford and Holden, and, and in particular, how that sort of manifested in the ute space as well. You were either you know, a Ford family or a Holden family. And, and that doesn't exist so much, but at its peak, it was a real legitimate rivalry, right? Absolutely. I, I think back to my my time at high school, I was big into cars and my dad worked at Ford. Uh, we lived in Geelong, so I had to be kind of a Ford fan, right? And some of the arguments I got into at high school, especially when the V8s were on Bathurst weekend, if Holden took a win, I would hear about it on the Monday. And it it was kind of the saying that, uh, you know, you win on Sunday, sell on Monday. And it was because these production cars were so aligned with the race cars, it really ran deep. And certainly in the ute scene, you were only ever a Ford or a Holden person. It was inconceivable that you would ever switch brands. I mean, something would have had to have gone totally wrong. And uh, it was because there was no other choice. I mean, you you either do one or the other or you get the agricultural utes at the time, which are are very different to what the Ranger and the Hilux is today. They were very much work vehicles. So that rivalry runs deep. It has tapered off now, though. I mean, you look at at the state of the market, um, what happened to the Australian car industry. It all just disappeared. It evaporated. And while Australian classic cars are now increasing in value, I think that people are slightly more open-minded and they're more willing to try other things now that that whole sense of rivalry is gone. You were saying that the Holden ute didn't show up until the 50s, so the Geelong plant was cranking out, the Australian Ford Geelong plant was cranking out utes for 20 years. Like, what must have the conversations been like over at Holden? Like, we're going to have to do something here, boys. Well, that's the thing that I find really surprising. I think the fact that uh, Holden still didn't really have a good foothold in Australia, uh, Ford was well and truly dominating. They, they had that local presence. It took Holden a while to start up. But uh, I think that Holden, Holden ended up winning the ute game. And, and I say that because you fast forward to the 70s, and you remember things like the Sandman. And the Sandman was, you know, it was a, a sort of a van-based thing. But the Sandman spawned this generation of utes that moved away from commercial and into that fun space. People would build enclosures for them. They started hotting them up. They realised that there was a market for performance utes. And it even culminated to um, probably around three or four months ago where we saw a $1.1 million Australian utes sold, and it was one of four HSV GTSR W1 utes um, that, that were created in partnership with HSV and Walkinshaw. And I think that tells you just how much people love these things and how much they mean to to an Australian collector. The Sandman ute, like seriously, between that and the Sandman panel van, I mean, I don't know, they were both pretty, <laughs> pretty epic vehicles. I guess you could never have had the panel van have you not had the ute. Exactly. Like, the panel van would never have been birthed. 
so to speak, <laughs> if the ute hadn't existed first. Like, why do we need back seats for? We don't need back seats. You're doing it back there anyway. Let's at least put you in the cover. <laughs> you know, the, there was actually a, a story once that when they came up with the idea of the Sandman, uh, the engineers wanted to be a little cheeky with it and they wanted to have a mattress as one of the official options. And the Holden uh, boss at the time said, not a fucking chance. We're not going to let you allow people to put a mattress in the back of it with Holden branding. You can imagine all the babies and stuff that came out of the back of Sandman's. Uh, but they did get away with creating a tent. So you could basically attach a tent to the back of your Sandman to, to do your fornication. under A, a soft <laughs> panel fan. Yeah. <laughs> I've, uh, I've owned one ute in my life. Oh, she'd probably be able to guess what model my one ute was. I could definitely, I know... For- for a fact, I can't remember the number, but it would would have been Datsun Ute. It was Datsun 1200, yes. <laughs> now, that is cool. <laughs> it was very cool. Um, but it probably falls into, as we were talking about before, uh, show Utes versus work Utes. It was definitely the former. <laughs> but those things could handle. Like, they look a bit like a toy car, but they also handle in that sense as well. They've got a really large, thin steering wheel and small tyres, so... Anything you can see out of the corner of your eye, you can turn around. And there's a real joy in driving something that feels that, I mean, responsive probably isn't the word because you you feel everything. When I say you feel everything, every bump, every crevice, every crack that you go over. But at the same time, the car responds in like, it's very, very nimble. Um, But that's all I ever had for you. For you now, a man with a car obsession but no ute, imagine money's no object and you can't go for the Cybertruck because you're going to be <laughs> marginalised by your peers. What do you browse car expert in the dead of night looking for, hoping that it'll pop up that you can one day nab? Look, for me, it's the Maloo, uh, either the first generation of the Maloo or one of the latest GTSR models. So I was lucky enough... Um, to, to be able to have a drive of that $1.1 million ute. And the funny thing was when I picked it up from the bloke that bought it, I drove off and I was paranoid at every single set of lights that someone was going to like sideswipe me or something. To the naked eye, it looks like a $50,000 ute. But to think that this thing was worth $1.1 million, it, it just, it blew me away. And, and, and it still gives me chills thinking about it. And that thing was powered by an LS9 supercharged V8. It, it makes <laughs> no sense whatsoever Neither does the price, but I think if I ever found one, uh, and certainly not for a million dollars, or at least not that my wife needs to know about it, um, I would 100% buy one. But what you're saying there is like enough people feel that strongly about this particular kind and this particular vehicle that they have all agreed, oh, if I had to put a price on it, yeah, 1.1 million, and everyone went, yeah, that's about <laughs> right. Can you believe it? That, what does that say to you about the passion that we have in this country for this vehicle, which is pretty impractical for getting anything more than two people around safely under the, the, the street laws of this country? It is insane. And I mean, you can't even use it as a ute. Um, you can't see out the back of it because the sailplane was so big. Like, it is the most pointless car in the world. Um, even the tyres, they're, they're virtually a racing slick. So you can't drive it in the wet. They come with a warning saying you can't drive this in the wet. It is the most pointless car. But the fact that someone paid $1.1 million just blows me away. <laughs> well, you mentioned before that obviously manufacturing in this country has disappeared. Do you... I think we'll get a point where 
you know, the love for the youth starts to dissipate or is it so embedded in our culture and, and our identity that it's always going to have a special place? Yeah, look, that's an interesting one. I feel our culture is slowly evolving. I mean, you look at what's going on in the media at the moment, what you can and can't say anymore. And I think that's a good thing, but also a bad thing in the sense that some of the stuff that's embedded in us will slowly sort of go away. And I, I wasn't even born in this country. I was born uh, in Serbia. We came to Australia as, as immigrants. My dad worked at Ford for uh, 30 years. So for me, it, it wasn't even something that I was born with, but it's something that, that I inherited as being an Australian. And I think that for people like me that sort of think of a ute and picture Australia, that it will be there forever. But I think if you ask me that question again in 30 or 40 years' time, I think the ute will simply be a, a sort of distant memory uh, unless you sort of remember that type of thing. One of the vehicles you own is an electric vehicle. You own a Tesla electric vehicle. When you see the President of the United States of America on a test track putting the foot down on an all-electric F-150 and getting up to 85 miles an hour in like something like five seconds, what, what, what are your thoughts about the feelings of high-performance vehicles and, you know, where we as a country might end up. Look, I, I, I'm, at, I, I'm in two minds about this. So I, I love the, that we're moving towards electric because to me it's, um, it's environmentally friendly. It, it takes us away from the stuff that we can't just keep mining forever. So all that stuff's great. My only concern is, and this is in general with electric cars, we're putting these things that are so fast and so powerful in the hands of everyday people. And even now, up until last week, the world's fastest production car was the new Tesla Model S, and it did a quarter mile in under nine seconds. And if you do that at a drag strip in Australia, you have to have like a roll cage and, and I think a parachute as well. And this is a car that you can go and buy online and have it delivered to your house. And I think that this, this race to have these utes that are fast I just think it's going to land us in trouble. You look at how many youths there are on the market at the moment and most of them are four-cylinder diesels that take 10 or 12 seconds to get up to 100 k's an hour. If you change that around and give someone access to the same vehicle that will do that in half the time, I'm just concerned for the safety of us all. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, you get to like play with cars and write about cars and talk about cars for a living and you're a car nut. What a dream. How'd you pull this shit off? Uh, well, you know what? Um the, the same dad that worked incredibly hard uh, to give us what we have here in Australia told me uh, at age 17 when I started a car website, uh, don't waste your time with that, uh, focus on uni. And I ignored him and ended up selling that site to Car Advice who, who I worked with uh, and then we ended up selling that to Channel 9. Uh, I then basically got into an engineering degree at uni which got me a foot in the door with a local newspaper in Geelong so I had my website where I was writing about cars, a local newspaper where I was writing about cars, and and much to my surprise, these people, these manufacturers in Australia were like, yeah, here's a car to test drive. And I thought, that is so weird that this is a job that someone gets paid to do. And uh, it's sort of developed since there, and, and I've, I've driven thousands of new cars since I started the job and, and I absolutely love it. I love the car industry. I love uh, where the car industry is going and I think that with an engineering background, it kind of gives me a different edge to some of my colleagues who are journalists in the field and may not understand the intricacies of how everything works. Moral of the story is never listen to your father. 
Never listen to your father. Particularly one exactly. who, you understand what I gave up? You don't understand that I brought you to this country? I work my fingers <laughs> to the bone in a factory, in a fucking factory? Exactly. You sit at keyboard all day. This not work? This is not work? He was literally saying this isn't a job. And I'm like, well, it fucking is. So just let me do it. You call this job? Look at these hands. Look at these hands. That's job. This is work. You think you get calluses from typing? You're QWERTY? Are they QWERTY calluses? It became an Indian accent there at one stage. So sorry to our Serbian listeners. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's, that's the thing. He can literally grate cheese with the calluses on his hands, but mine are so soft that they can put you to sleep. Oh, you, could, you could stroke the hair out of my eyes while you tell me tales of, of incredibly safe electric vehicles with high kilowatts, and uh, I'll, I'll fall off to sleep knowing that our future is in good hands. Paul, congrats on um, getting Car Expert up and running, bloody ripper an exciting time to be writing about cars as we all transition very quickly over the next decade or so into things that don't run on juiced up dinosaurs. (laughs) Thank you, guys. (laughs) I think that pretty much wraps it up. Paul Marek there from um, Car, the managing editor of Car Expert, I think he kind of wrapped up that we as a country, we love our youth so much that a bunch of blokes will get together, stand around and look at one and go, yep, that's worth 1.1 million bucks. And I love that we finally cracked the mystery that it really is an Australian invention, an Australian institution made here and all that had to happen was a farmer's wife had to write a letter to a major vehicle manufacturer. So if you are, I mean, one of Channel Line's uh, favourite Franchise television shows is Farmer Wants a Wife, but there's definitely a market for Farmer's Wife Wants a Vehicle, um, which is a, a pilot that I haven't pitched, but having talked to Paul about the genesis of the Ute, I think I might pitch Farmer's Wife Wants a Vehicle. I think it's great. you just got to be good. What do you need to be good at? Letter writing with long hand, very important skill these days. And, uh, you know, the stakes have got to be high. You want a vehicle that can do this and this. Obviously needs a bit of fleshing out, but um, leave that with me. <laughs> but brilliant. I love that it came from necessity and is now an integral part of our identity as a nation. And maybe we can get you in one. Can we get you in one? Maybe a, a, a bright orange, a sunburnt orange? I'm all about, I think, because as Wolfie gets older, there's, it's either going to be dirt bikes or jet skis or something that will require a tray loading capacity in the back. It, that's what's definitely going to happen. So um, you bet. There's a ute in my future. Let's make it happen. I love it. Awesome work. Big thanks to Big Paul from Car Expert. Check it out, carexpert.com.au. And if uh, you've got any ideas or suggestions or want us to investigate a deep dive here on Idle Australians about anything that's happened in the past or maybe that's coming up in the future of this wide brown land, let us know, idleaustralians at gmail.com. Thanks heaps to Daryl Misson, who um, is the audio producer for this show, Toe Hyder for the music, Bruce Steele, our producer, James Matheson, who is, look, I don't know, for a man in lockdown uh, who's doing a lot of homeschooling, he's, look, I'm not going to say, I've never not seen him with a gun show. He's got his T-shirt out tonight, no jumper, keeps putting his hands behind his head, just biceps. It's like watching Jonathan LaPaglia say, Osher wins immunity all the time. Oh, that's because I'm in a tiny, tiny room and I can't have my arms by my side for very long or the, the blood 
drains from my head. Um, no, that that's they're not muscles. That's just that's just like not eating lockdown. I just, I'm so happy to see your face, man. I really needed to see your face today. I love my family. They're amazing, and I'm also very happy to see your face today, James. Mm, um, yes, it's getting to everyone, isn't it? <laughs> Um, <laughs> all right, bud. Have a good week. Take care of yourself. Thanks for listening. Good night. Good night. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.